0: If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to open back up with me to the book of First Timothy, chapter 3. We're going to be closing off chapter 3 this week and by God's grace next week. And we started uh, the last time I was here preaching in verse 14, where, we, where it reads, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mysteries of godliness. And last time we were together, we spent the entire time unpacking that beginning of the verse where Paul says to Timothy, I hope, and we looked at how we, well, we called it a hopology, and we started in... The Psalms and we looked at how true hope and what is hope and only hope comes from the knowledge of God, his sovereignty and his providential hand. And how Paul is saying here to Timothy, this remind us that he longs, he hopes, he deeply wants to be with him. But he also knows that it does not matter how much he tarries, no matter how hard he works, no matter how much effort that Paul puts into coming back to be with Timothy in Ephesus, it is totally and ultimately in the hands of God. Therefore, Paul is hoping in the knowledge of who God is he is hoping in the power of God, and he is ultimately saying, Timothy, I hope to be with you. I will work to be with you. But you and I both know that it is up to a sovereign, holy God for whether or not I will truly be with you or not. And if you remember, we spent that entire time unpacking this term, hope, and how the world has no hope. The world has no true, everlasting knowledge of of how it is God and only God who controls and orchestrates all things and how they work and they labour in vain and how all that working and labouring leads them ultimately to the knowledge of that there is no hope. No hope of life after death. No hope in the midst of bad circumstances. No hope in the midst of failing health. No hope whatsoever because there is only one hope and that hope is in the Lord. So this morning what I want to do is I want to go down as far as verse 16 and next week we'll unpack the remainder of verse 16 so this morning may not be as long as some of you may have been dreading maybe. Gary's been off now for two weeks, he's full of passion, he's ready to get back in the pulpit, watch out, we'll be here for a good hour and a half I don't think that's going to be the case this morning. What I want to do is, I want us to just read down food again. We will come before our Father in prayer, and hopefully, by the Holy Spirit, we will be able to better understand what Paul is conveying to Timothy. So it reads, as we read before I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that, if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and a buttress of truth. Let's pray. Father, we ask, Lord, as we do each time we gather around your word for this word, Lord, that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that it may pierce us this morning, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that our hearts may be receptive, that our minds may be receptive, that we can tear down any walls that do not want us to hear your truth this morning. We ask, the Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we have true ears that can hear you speak this morning. We thank you, Father, that each one of us gather here because we hunger and we thirst for righteousness. And your word tells us that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be satisfied. So we ask, oh Lord, may we be satisfied as we drink and eat of your word this morning. May we be satisfied, Father, to see the depths of who you are and who we are. We ask, Lord, that you be glorified through the study of your word and that we O oh Lord might know you deeper than before we came into this place this morning we ask this Lord in the name of Jesus Christ we pray Amen so we know if we just recant back over what we've been looking at over the past number of months we have come close to the end of verse, or sorry, chapter 3 and. Then 1 Timothy is divided into six chapters. So Paul deliberately sets in here this end of chapter three. We've come out of the understanding of the qualifications of an overseer or an elder and deacon. And then he places this strategically in to close off the first three chapters and lead us into the next three chapters. And what he says is that I hope to come to you soon. We know that Paul is writing this in Macedonia. He has left Timothy in charge. This is. After his first Roman imprisonment, he's gone to Ephesus, he's seen the problems within the Ephesian church, he sees the corrupt false leadership, the corrupt false pastors and elders that are currently within the church, and he starts himself by handing over several individuals to Satan. He starts to... Tear out those who do not belong in the household of God. He starts to point out the flaws of the Judaizers, the flaws of the the false prophets and the false teachers. He starts to set in motion the position of what men should be in the church, what women should be in the church, and how the church itself should be called to be separate from society. For those of us who know the church history of Ephesus and how the church was established in Ephesus, we understand that Ephesus was a prominent place of debauchery, Prostitution was everywhere. They had a massive temple in the center of Ephesus to the prophetess Diana. And at the evening time, the the harlots and the prostitutes would come out of this massive, huge temple and go down into the cities. Alcohol was prevalent. Every kind of debauchery was prevalent in Ephesus. And this was creeping in to the church, even though Paul had laboured for many years establishing a good foundation. It was in a short period of time that the wolves had come in from within the church and started to tear apart the truth, start to question the authority of Christ, and started to actually point to the Judaizers. You had many people who wanted to simply be a leader or a pastor or a teacher or an overseer, so that they could be seen and lifted up by the rest of the congregation and those outside of the church to be something. So this is what's going on as as Paul leaves the imprisonment in Rome. He goes to Ephesus. He sees this problem. He begins the work. He then leaves Timothy in charge. We've been given the first three chapters. And here, once again, he's reminding Timothy of why he is in Ephesus. How he longs to be there but he can't. So he's putting all his truth, all his knowledge, everything the Holy Spirit is laying upon his heart in this letter to Timothy to establish the true church, the true bride of Christ even though he's not going to be there. We also know that he will not ever be there. It's going to lead on to the point where we're going to get into 2 Timothy by God's grace and we're going to see that he is then imprisoned in Rome and there is no one else with him apart from Luke and how these letters are so important and vital for not only the establishment of the church in Ephesus but also for the establishment of the church in our time. So what he says then is, I hope to be with you soon but I'm writing these things. What things? The things that we have read and the things that we will read. He's letting Timothy be reminded of why he has this letter. I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, which he is, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. So the whole point of this letter is not just for the church in Ephesus The whole point of this letter is for the church globally. This is how the bride of Christ should look. This is how one is to conduct themselves in the church. This is how elders should look, deacons should look. This is how, as we read in chapter 2, the role of women should look. This is how holiness should be described. This is how the gospel should be. This is all written down for you so you can clearly see how the church ought to be. And he uses here the household of God. Now many people falsely and wrongly want to attribute the household of God as simply the place where they met. And it isn't talking about the global church, it's actually talking about bricks and mortar. Well we know that that isn't true because this term household of God is prevalent throughout scripture. So just turn with me a little bit this morning just to see a better understanding of this term household of God from Galatians chapter 6 verse 10. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 reads So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Take a right in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Clearly showing us here that we, the people who are here this morning, are the church. This building is not the church, even though we we live in a cultural society that points to that building as a church no we are the church we are the household of God we are those who are being built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets that's also very important for today's society we're living in a, in a new apostolic reformation society we're living in a since apparently since 2012 there has been quote-unquote apostles well here we have in scripture The truth of God, the living word, telling us that we, members of the church, born in this generation, are coming together as living stones built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and Christ Jesus being the cornerstone. We don't lay again a foundation, we're building, and Christ is constantly building on top of a foundation that is set. The word of God is set, the apostles are set, and Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone, is set In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So this term household of God refers directly to us as individual living stones being joined together by the Holy Spirit set upon a foundation that is the apostles and the prophets and Christ Jesus himself. Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 6. But Christ is faithful over God's house. As a son. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence. And are boasting in our hope. Same reference. Same hope. Same terminology. That. Paul is using talk about how I hope to be with you we're holding fast to the hope of that that is true in the gospel that when we die we shall be raised from the grave and we shall be with the Lord forever we are his house we are his household we are the church back to first timothy So clearly we understand then that this is setting forth, this letter, this epistle is given to the church by the Apostle Paul through the powerment of the Holy Spirit for the education and how we are to behave, act and conduct ourselves as the household, the church of God. And he emphasised that which he says then, which is the church of the living God. So here we have a clear depiction for Timothy as he's reading this to the church that is establishing itself and is established in Ephesus, one true fact. Now we have, we lose this, this understanding when we read this of how the listeners of this, church, of, of this letter in Timothy's time would have seen temples and seen quote unquote churches everywhere, the temple of diana as i've talked about was massive there was some 127 huge massive marble pillars that held up the roof each pillar was given as a gift by the kings of the region they were massive as i said they were solid marble they were covered then in precious stones and diamonds and rubies and then laden with gold And this was to point to how great and how mighty and how magnificent this so-called God Diana was. So if anybody came to Ephesus, they would clearly see, well, that truly has to be the God of all gods. Because look at the temple. Look at the architecture. Look at the structure. Look at the gold. Look at the diamonds. Look at how each king has given a pillar as a tribute and an offering to this True, holy, so-called living God. But Paul's saying to Timothy, don't let them get caught up in the culture. Because if you were in that time and you looked at the temple of Diana and you looked at the church that were in Ephesus, it was not much to be looked at. There was no grandeur in the building. There was no gold. There was no marble. There was no place that this God could dwell in. He's setting forth here something that is very true for us today and for them. You are the church. You are these pillars. You are just like the the temple of Diana. You're being built together by God, but you have one unique, specific thing that is different from every other temple and every other dwelling of so-called gods. You are the dwelling place of the living God, the only God, Yahweh, There is but only one God and I am He. Who shall I say that sent me? Say that I am has sent you. This is God. He does not dwell dwell in places made by man. He does not dwell in temples. He is everywhere. The earth is His footstool. And if you want to see his glories, you don't look to man-made architecture. You look to the world itself and the majesty and the magnificence of all creation. From the birds of the sky to the flowers and the valleys and the mountains and the lakes and the rivers or whatever else you want to see. That shows his majesty. But not just that. As Paul says, we are the household which is the true church, or which is the church of the living God. And then he says a pillar and a buttress. So he's pointing clearly here to what everyone's going to be thinking, which is what I just said. How can this raggedy bunch of sinful people, ex-fornicators, ex Tax collectors, all these people that we know are sinful, wretched people, and worthy even meeting. How can they be a true representation of the so-called living God? And Paul points to it. He says, The purpose of the church, the meaning of the church, the whole idea of having the church on earth is for one. Purpose. The church is a pillar and a buttress of the truth. That's why we're here today. It doesn't matter if we are in a cathedral, it doesn't matter if we're in this building. We gather here this morning as a representation for all who are out in that mall and all who are in our mall and everyone who is in your workplace to see one specific purpose. It is not for entertainment, it is not to be culturally relevant. It is not for any other purpose apart from truth. We, the church, are here as a pillar and a buttress of truth. Just as those magnificent pillars of the Temple of Diana were laden with gold, pointed with diamonds and rubies and every other precious stone and made of solid marble, and how grand they were, if you want to know the truth, look at the church of God. That is all the reason why we are here. The truth we're to point people to the truth. And even that today is an argumentative point. Well, what do you mean, the truth? Surely you just mean your interpretation of the truth. That's not what Paul's saying. He said it is the truth. There is only one truth. And that is that Christ Jesus, as it says in John fourteen six, I am the way, the only way, I am the truth, the only truth, and I am the life. You can look at every other thing out there, but you pick a church, a gathering of individuals based upon one specific attribute. Do they hold fast to the truth? This this week we have seen and last week we have seen the Presbyterian Church come into the spotlight. Because they will not shift from the truth. If you are a practicing homosexual and you are not repentant and you have not embraced the full graciousness of the Lord. And you continue in that practice like every other sinner. Then you will die and you will surely go to hell. That's the truth. It's why the moderator of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland who have turned aside from the truth and embraced same-sex marriage came over to go to the gathering of the Presbyterian Church of Ireland and he was told and rightly told you're not welcome. If any other person preaches any other gospel they are to be accursed. They are to be an anathema. They are meant to be and sent directly to hell. Even if an angel. That's why it's so important what we just read there. Where is our foundation? Where do we first go as a pillar for truth? We go to the buttress. We go to the foundation, which is the apostles and the prophets of the Old Testament and Christ Jesus himself. It cannot shaken. It cannot move. You can't add to it. You can't dig up the foundations and lay a new foundation. It is set. Therefore, God's truth as this pillar. Set upon the buttress that is Christ and the apostles and his word is not to be changed. Culture does not change it. You need to be culturally relevant. No, I need to be truthful. But that's your interpretation of the truth. No, it's not. There is only one truth. You are either wrong or I am either wrong. But just because you believe it is true doesn't make it true. Just because you wish it was true, doesn't make it true. There is but one truth. So the church of God, apparently according to Paul here, to Timothy, is to be a pillar and a buttress of the truth. The gospel. Well, how do we know he means that? Because he goes on to say He says in verse 16, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angel angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world and taken up in glory. Unshakable truths of the truth. That's why we have God's word. It is not an interpretative thing. God's word means one thing, and only ever will mean one thing. Many people can twist it. Many people can change it. And many people can fall into the snare of what the devil has been doing from the garden. What and how did we get to the position that we're in? The devil attacked truth. Did God really say? Surely if a God is a God of love, he can't mean that. Surely God understands the times in which we live in and and surely he doesn't believe that a man should have this role and a woman should have this role surely he doesn't mean in in the current economic platform which we're in that you're not meant to just shave a little bit or take a little bit or do something a little bit different surely he doesn't mean that those who actually tell a lie will go to hell surely it's just the murderers who go to hell or the fornicators Not the gossips, not the slanders, not the liars, that's what it says. It's the truth, the way, the life, unshakable. Therefore, whether or not there is only two pillars or one pillar in the years to come within these walls, that's his church doesn't matter how many gather together or how ornate it is or how wonderful it seems to be. Just like the Temple of Diana, it's false. It's perishing. It's demonic. There is is, and only is one truth. Therefore, to build God's church for the true bread of Christ to exist, it has to be all about one thing. Truth. Doctrine. Interpreting God's Word. The hermetical principles of how God's Word interprets God's Word. It does not contradict itself. It is not changeable. That's why we have it written over this pulpit. The Word of God, what? Stands forever. It does not change. Therefore, Timothy, remember this. Therefore, those who are in our day, remember this. I read this week of a mission that's coming up. Praise God for it. But as I read it, it said one thing. That I know what they mean. But it isn't what they should have said. Come and have. Come and know. And have a personal relationship with God. See that's interpretive. you can go to a Buddhist today. He will tell you he has a personal relationship with Buddha. Even though Buddha doesn't exist. You can go talk to somebody who is no more saved than my phone, and yet he'd say, "Well, that can't be true because I'm practicing such and such, and I know who God is." Turn to the scriptures, Matthew 7:21. Lord, Lord, I thought I had a personal relationship. I thought I knew who you were. I thought that I did all these things in your name, and Jesus was said, "Apart from me, I never knew you." It's not come to hear the gospel, to have a personal relationship with God. That may be an uh, attribute. It is come, hear the gospel, and be saved. For, saved from what? From everlasting torment and punishment in hell. That is the truth of the Bible. Why did Christ come? Not so that I can have a personal relationship with God. To save me and redeem me from my sin. So that when I come into the presence of God, I may know him, yes. But he came for that specific reason. The truth of the gospel is the life, the ministry, the death of Jesus Christ as an atonement for us. So that we can be freed from sin. So we can receive a new nature, we can receive a new heart, that God graciously and lavishly chooses whom He wishes to give this gift to. That's the truth. It does not come to church and be entertained, it does not come to church and enjoy a certain type of worship come to church for a certain type of creche or a certain type of kids ministry or I love how they do such and such does the church preach and teach the truth will they stand that abortion is murder will they stand that same sex marriage is wrong Well, they stand and say that boyfriends and girlfriends or partners, if you want to use that word, living together and having a sexual relationship is just as demonic and wrong as the homosexuals. Well, they stand and say that if you continue to lie, you're in danger of coming underneath the condemnation of a holy God. We are called to be righteous, to be set apart. That's why he says... As he finishes in verse 16. Great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. How we sinful fallen people can be made and deemed righteous. Through the imputation of Christ. God looks at us and sees not our sinful acts. Our fallen nature he sees but one person. Christ. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Clothed in each and every one of us. He sees the Holy Spirit coming in and changing our hearts and giving us a new nature. He is gracious, he is merciful, and he says where sin abounds, grace abounds more. Therefore we as a church, as we read this epistle, we read this letter, what do we hold fast to? I may not like what it says in chapter 1, chapter 2, or chapter 3, 4, 5 or 6, but this is God's word. It is his truth. It is not here for interpretation. It is here for humbling acceptance and to realise that for all the world to come to know God, they are to come to one reality. They need the truth. The truth that yes, God is a loving God. Yes, you can come to know who God is and have a personal relationship with him, but you first have to come to the reality that you need to be humbled. You need to repent repent. You need to come underneath the conviction like we, we sang. The treasures of the darkness. Nobody wants that. Not even us here. To come underneath that pain and that feeling of guilt of our sin. So we can be sharpened. We can be purged by the fire of our own guilt. And come into understanding that God is gracious. Therefore we can worship him. Not based upon how much money we have in our bank accounts or based upon even our health or anything else. But based upon one thing which we read, the hope that we have that no one else has. The hope that when I breathe my last, I'll be with him forever in glory. The hope that we have that one day this wretched body of sin will be gone and we will receive a new sinless body. And for everlasting and everlasting we will be with him rejoicing in the knowledge that we are saved we'll see it this wednesday night by god's grace we watch that movie by the apostle paul where you see nero throwing christians into his circus being torn apart how could they still worship god in the midst of that because they knew their pain and their suffering would be but a moment And they'll be saved, redeemed, resurrected, and be with the Lord. That's the point of the truth of the gospel. When you die, you will stand before the Lord, and only one thing will matter did you hold firm to the truth? Did you stay the course? Did you keep your hope in the truth? Of who God is. Who Christ was. And how his sacrifice on the cross was sufficient. It is the truth that sets us free. That is why we remember this morning who our Saviour is. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. There is no other way. There is no other truth. And there is no other life after death apart from Christ. Amen. That's perfect. Father, we thank you this morning for a reminder of what your church is called to be, Lord. Father, we desire so much to be in other people's lives. We desire so much, Father, for your gospel to take root in so many hearts, Lord. And sometimes, Father, we can even get in the way, Lord, of your hand truly working, Lord. We can give people false hope through false professions we can give them false gospels lord half truths god father help us to be what we're called to be a proclaimer of the truth a pillar of the truth set upon the buttress that is the truth given to us through the, the prophets the apostles and christ father we live in an age when the truth is being attacked everywhere father The devil is rampant even within the household of you, O Father. And he wants to destroy the truth. He wants to lead us into vain worship. He wants to lead us into false doctrines and false gospels. And we pray this morning that you'd be gracious to us, Lord. And give us the eyes to see what is truth and what is error. What is true and what is a lie. That we may run and flee from anything, Father God that may cling to our flesh, that draws us away from your truth. Father, we ask, Lord, that you speak to us, guide us, shepherd us, Father, through your word, that we may know the truth of who Christ is, the glorious riches of the gospel. And as we come back by your grace next week to unpack what is written in verse 16, Lord, we thank you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.